why don't we go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. We'll pray and ask God's blessing upon our class this morning. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for once again being able to be together for corporate worship. And we thank you in, in advance for what you are going to do in each of our lives today by way of challenging us, instructing us, encouraging us, comforting us, and all the other ways that you work in our hearts through your words. We do pray for the Spirit's work, even this morning as we dive into the subject of the doctrine of man and what the Bible teaches about about the issue of being male and female. And we pray that you would renew our minds through your word and help us, give us discernment that we might be able to navigate through this uh, a society in which these things are being rearranged and distorted. And we, we pray that you give us biblical understanding and deep conviction regarding the truth of Scripture on these matters. And we pray as well, Lord, that just throughout the rest of the day that you would bless us richly through our fellowship and through our worship, and that you would be honored and glorified through it all. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys, so uh, continuing in our Doctrine of Man and Sin class, and I wanted to actually just start with um, a review of last time, and I mentioned that I would give some time for questions so, the review will sort of remind you of the things we talked about last time, and then hopefully that will remind you of any questions that you might have had, because we talked about a number of different things, but I didn't have end up with time to ask, open it up for questions. But last time, so we're going to spend three sessions here talking about a man as male and female, as part of the larger teaching of the doctrine of man, what the Bible teaches about mankind. And the first uh, class, we just talked about the basics of what the, of the biblical teaching on, on male and female. Last Then last time, we talked about the issue of... Well, actually, I think, it, I think we started out last time talking about establishing the basic teaching and also that man is equal in certain ways, and also different in certain ways in terms of their gender, male and female. We talked about ways that the ways men and women are equal. They're equally human, equal in the image of God, equal heirs of the creation mandate, and equal standing in Christ. And then we talked about the ways men and women are different, how they're created different. We could see that from Genesis 2. And that they're created different in order to fulfill different and complementary roles, both in the family and in the church. And then, finally, we talked about the differences between men and women being existing before the fall. So even though the roles of men and women are distorted by the fall, you can even see that in the curse where God tells the woman... Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you, so that you can see there's going to be tension and conflict. You also begin to see it immediately after the fall in the way that Eve, Adam and Eve relate to one another, that all of a sudden now Eve says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And you see tension and conflict already entering in. Um, but in terms of gender itself and gender and, and the distinctions between the gender, Genders That was there before the fall. And so, contrary to what some people have argued, gender itself and distinct gender roles, in other words, the differences between the complementary differences and complementary roles of men and women, are not the result of the fall, such that, you know, eventually, when we are redeemed through Christ, we'll be rid of all that. But rather, they existed before the fall and are part of God's good creation. And then, also, I introduced you to the terms complementarianism and egalitarianism, which really represent the sides, the two main sides, in the debate within evangelicalism on this subject. In other words, on this matter of man being equal yet different, there has been quite a bit of debate within evangelical Christianity. In other words, these are true Christians on each side of the debate, some arguing that the things that I said up here are not really 
much of it is not true, and others on the complementarian side articulating the position that I that I did. Now, just a note. Of course, the fact that women are assigned different roles than men in the family and the church does not mean that women are inferior to men or that their roles are less important to, than men. That's really the lie of the feminist revolution, isn't it? That if men, if women are not allowed by God to do everything that men do, in other words, unless our, if our uh, roles are not equal, uh, then and that renders women to an inferior place. And that's just a lie. You, know? you can be equal inherently before God and have different roles. Different roles don't make a person inferior. So when Paul says famously, I do not permit a woman to teach or hold authority over man in 1 Timothy 2, that doesn't mean that he views women as being inferior to men. In fact, he's the same one that said in Galatians uh, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So there is an equality in our standing before God um, and that that is not in any way undermined by the fact that God has created us different and assigned us different roles to fulfill. Now, with that being said, that kind of draws to your mind a lot of material did you guys have any questions that you wanted to ask by way of clarification or follow-up from all that material? Any questions? I know it's controversial stuff, so I'm not sure where all you guys are at, and don't be afraid to, to ask questions, to contradict, as long as you're willing to be uh, corrected. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been curious about the words complementarianism and yeah. egalitarianism. Right. What's like the root of egalitarianism? Is that, what is that, is that Greek or Latin? Or um, I'm actually not sure what the linguistic root, but the idea of egalitarianism is equality. Okay. Yeah. So, e- yeah, and egalitarians would not, would not, um, would not question the fact that there are differences between male and female um, and that there are some distinctions that come with that. For instance, you know, only women can have children. <laughs> but where they would press back is to say that those differences involve or carry to the level of roles, right? So that despite our biological differences and some distinctions that come with that, Men and women should be free to fulfill both the role, uh, both the same roles within the church and the family, and and I would argue that there is a, a spectrum, right? Just like within complementarianism, you might have some people say, "Well, I'm a soft complementarian," you know. And so, for instance, they might say, and and on the same on on the egalitarian side, there's a spectrum. So some people might say, "Well, I don't believe a, a woman could be a pastor, but I don't see why a woman couldn't." teach a Sunday school class like this with men and women, right? And so how you work out the details, there's a spectrum on either side. Yeah, yeah Janelle. Is there a place that um, our elders land when it comes to where Yes. Women? Oh, you mean... You're answering me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was the yes to? Well, no, I was just saying that our elders would be on the complementarian side, right? No, I just meant like... Uh, across the board. I mean, obviously women are the main teachers in the children's right. thing. Not to say that men couldn't and shouldn't be there as an opportunity, right. um, but at what right. point along that road do you say, yeah, no, we're not going to have women teaching? Right. Yeah, so some of the... Um, so you can fall in one or the other of these spectrums. Um, I would argue that this is the biblical position and that there's going to be consequences in the life of the church by adopting this position. One of them being that you have to go through exegetical gymnastics to, with God's word to get there. And then there's going to be dysfunction in the life of the church when you land on the egalitarian side. However, even on the complementarian side, there are all kinds of details that have to be worked out, you know, such as, 
Okay, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or hold authority over a man. At what point is a boy a man? (laughs) And so at what point could uh, a woman, so could a woman uh, participate in the teaching of the youth group, right? Right. (laughs) Or, and so I think generally we've said that, of course, uh, for instance, within the family, a woman is involved with teaching her children. And so it makes sense that in the church as well, women teaching the children is not, would not be prohibited either. But at some point you recognize that, you know, these children are growing into adults. And that, that does seem to be the realm within the gathered church that men should be teaching men. And anytime there's a mixed gathering of men and women, that that would fall into that realm of, I do not permit a, a woman to teach or hold authority over a man. And so, yeah, so we, somewhere in there is, is uh, a transition. <laughs> and so I think... No, I mean, I do answer. Like, we have, we have women teaching the children because we believe that, yeah. Okay, so, so you would say at, at like, the, the youth group, so up until yeah. grade. Well, yeah. People teaching. Right. I mean, I think, the- I think we have just erred on the side that once you get into the teenage years and in the youth group, we're just going to say, hey, we're going to probably err on, on the conservative side there and have the men teaching the, the teenage boys and whatnot. But that being said, Janelle, like, you remember the incident where Apollos comes along and he, in the book of Acts, and he comes to Ephesus and he's teaching and he's a powerful teacher and he's a Christian, but he's, he's got some things wrong. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and instructed him in the way of the Lord, right? And what you see there is that this was not like a formal gathering of the church and, you know, some kind of like me standing up in front of a, a group of men and women and teaching. This was an informal uh, context in which instruction was taking place and no doubt Priscilla was involved with that. So we're not saying that women don't teach men in any respect, in any context, right? Um, you might have a very godly woman that you sit down with and in your home and she's she's sharing things and, in, and there's mutual encouragement and things going on that so it doesn't mean that they're not there's no teaching no context in which a woman would never teach a man anything you know what i'm saying um so but so th- that's where the devil is in the details you know and different people are going to come to different conclusions on how to work those principles out yeah i was in uncomfortable situation where it was mixed class and right. the pastor had been gone and there was uh, someone else that had been teaching the class and there had been conversation going on and and having some experience in my life I right. was sharing something and it was welcomed but the pastor came back and mm. um, three times he corrected me and told me I was mm. to stay silent because there were men right. in the room. Right. And I didn't right. have to stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. First right. There. But, you know, it seems to me if there's a mixed group of women right. to be able to share things that God yeah. has taught her right. in accordance with whatever the right. lesson is. <laughs> right. Right, right. Or for, you know, a conversation with someone at home fellowship group and, some, and you know, you're talking to a, a couple and a, and a man says... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, yeah, I'm not sure about this uh, Jesus being God thing, you know. Should the woman just sit there and say, well, I can't say anything because I'm a woman? <laughs> of course factor, not. That's true, right? You have an age yeah. factor of, there might be a, a six-year-old woman and a 20-year-old man. Right. A six-year-old woman has so much more wisdom. Right. Than that right. So right. I would quite, you know, Exactly, yeah. Just not say anything. How many of you have maybe sat down with a with your grandma and grandpa when you were in those years and, and learned much from a wise grandmother um, as she shared from the Word. My mom did that with me all the way, as, all throughout my life. <laughs> so, she, yeah. Exactly. She's, she might be listening to this. So, thank you, Mom. She will eventually, probably. So, yeah. It's just like, there's another verse in First Corinthians where Paul says, that the women are to keep silent in the church. And you ask, well, okay, that, that sounds like, what does that mean, you know? And in that same passage, he talks about women prophesying with their head covered as opposed to uncovered. 
So you know that women, when he says that, he doesn't mean that entire, complete silence, right? <laughs> uh, but there was clearly something that he was referring to. And so it seems that women in some way in the Corinthian church were, were speaking out in the gathered church in a way that was inappropriate. We're not exactly sure what, but, and so you say, well, in the context, he deals with male headship and how that, that that should be reflected in the gathered worship through the men teaching and that the women should not be functioning in that same role, but it doesn't mean complete silence, you know, (laughs) it clearly can't in the context. So yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Right. We like say things like, "Oh, women can't—they can't like speak or be preachers." But then we also we kind of like get rid of the thing about women like having their like have head coverings, or like we keep right. We keep, it seems like we keep something and then we don't like. But I understand that there's right. context with like who Paul was like speaking to and the letters he's writing. But like you yes. were just kind of saying that was in the same context. Right. They, they couldn't speak, but they also had like, head coverings. So it's like I don't know. The head coverings issue is, a, is actually a very difficult one because uh, there, there are things in the scripture where a command is going to be relative. Uh, it has to do with uh, the cultural practices of the day, right? And in that case, what you're wanting to do is take the principle that is applied but recognize that our cultural context is going to be different, so the principle is going to, the, the principle may, remains, but it's applied in a different way. What makes that text particularly different, difficult, is that he roots it in creation order and talks about how, even when you look in nature, men have, you know, it's dishonorable for a man to have long hair, and it's dishonorable for a woman to shave her head or, or whatnot. And you think, man, okay, so he's rooting it in a creation principle. There's, there is a lot to be said for that. In fact, uh, we have a, a book on our shelf uh, called a Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a, it's a big, thick book. It's a more high-level book. Um, and there's a whole chapter on the head covering issue. He works through all the details and lands where I would land as well. I would say that in that cultural context, and it would still be true today in some Semitic contexts, that women wore head coverings as a sign of submission, and that when a woman didn't wear a head covering in that uh, context, it sort of screamed ancient world version of feminist revolution, right? <laughs> and, so, and so he's saying, hey, don't do that. You know, if in, in, in your context, in that context, He's saying women should wear head coverings because as a sign that they're respecting the authority in their life. In our day, head coverings don't have that. We don't have the same practice. We don't have the same cultural practices. So for a woman to not wear a head covering like all of you women today doesn't mean anything. In fact, if a woman came in with a head covering, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here, right? (laughs) However, Christians have differed on that. In fact, R.C. Sproul famously uh, believed that women should wear head covering, that the principle was an enduring principle that of women should wear head coverings in church in the same way. So most evangelical Orthodox Christians have argued that that was reflecting a cultural practice of the day. So the principle of reflecting submission to authority in your life remains. But the way it's worked out is different because our cultural context is different. But guarantee you, if you lived in a Semitic country today, like in the Middle East, the, the principle actually might still endure because in that context, the practice of wearing head, women wearing head coverings is still there. You still see some women from the Middle East in our country wearing head coverings, right? And in that context, if to take it off means you're basically putting the fist in the air to male authority, well then probably you should, in that context, still wear head coverings. Yes. Isn't there, I, you know, I've read it, but I don't remember, I think it was something Paul said about a woman's head covering is her hair. Well, yeah, in the, in the context, he talks about women's hair and, the length, and that, that even in nature, women, God gives women, designs it that women should have long hair and that that is a covering. And that adds a layer of 
difficulty to the text. <laughs> it seems to me like what he's doing is saying that the, this cultural practice of wearing head coverings reflects even what something you see in the natural order, that women wearing long hair, w- women having hair and not having their head shaven, for instance, is, is the natural norm, right? What makes that challenging is obviously, again, in some cultural contexts, for a woman to have a shaved head is you don't even blink an eye, right? <laughs> and you wonder, okay, is there something wrong with that? Is there something contrary to nature? Is that what Paul's saying? So that's a very difficult text, Marinelle, but I would say that I do believe that he seems to be just appealing to what we see pretty much in every culture that typically women wear their hair longer and men keep their hair shorter. And that reflects a sort of natural pattern that he's tying into the issue of head covering. So in, in one sense, every woman has a head covering with, it, with their hair. Um, it's just that it's, it is difficult. <laughs> there are interpretive issues there that I'm, you have to work through more carefully. Um, so it's not an easy answer to that. Any other questions? Okay, Carly. So, sorry, is that yeah. okay for us to just kind of like not worry about it and just like make sure our heart is in the right spot? Because like I feel like that's really what matters. Because I'm like, right. hey, I don't really think about, oh, like right. my head covering or whatever. Like, right. I'm just worried about like my heart, my heart's in the right spot. Like that's kind of what I've been taught as like spiritually, like is our soul and our heart. Yeah. I mean, that's all that matters and like how you like, I don't know, like those little fine details don't really define that you're right. faith or not. Yes, I, I would agree that I don't believe, Carly, that you need to necessarily sit down with your Bible and try to work out this issue right now and you're say like whether I should wear it. I believe, for instance, you can like we do on a lot of issues, say, Well, you know, this is what my pastors say, this is what my parents say, that how to understand that passage and I'm okay with that. I don't need to know all the details for myself. However, in general, if we just take the principle, as long as my heart's right, it doesn't matter my behavior. Well, right, you behavior, see? But like, I mean, because everything is... Right. If your behavior is wrong, then your heart's always not in a good spot. So. Right, so the key is, is the behavior wrong? You know? <laughs> so the, the behavior still matters. Okay, yeah. You can't just write off the behavior side of it by saying, well, my heart's in the right place. You know, a lot of people do that. A lot of people are very sincere in their convictions and they're sincerely wrong and they're in disobedience to God, right? So the behavior pattern, you can't just write it off. But I would say on this matter... But what's the definition of behavior? Well, in this case, it would be head covering or no, right? (laughs) So Paul was very serious that women should wear head coverings. But I would argue that that was for his cultural context. So I'm not saying that it doesn't matter at all what, whether you wear head covering or not. I'm just saying that, Carly, I think you can be settled in your mind that you know throughout the history of the church, the church has largely understood that passage as being culturally relative. While the principle of submission endures, the practice of head coverings is not necessarily um, something that needs to be practice in every cultural context. But I just want to press you a little bit on the idea that as long as my heart's in the right place, it doesn't matter how I, how I well, whether I have the behavior side of it. My correct. understanding of my behavior would be the understanding of that submission is necessary. Right, and right. if I understand that, and I, if that's my behavior, then I don't see a reason why I like head coverings. Right. As of now, that's what I understand. Right. Like the cultural... The principle I, behind head coverings was the submission. So it's like if that's right. the behavior still, right. I don't think I should be like worried about. Right. I think that's uh, yeah. The most important thing on this matter, wherever you land in head coverings, is that you have a heart of submission to the authorities that God has placed in your life. First, parents. You know, if you have a husband, husband, elders, and and everyone is submitting to God in these things. So that yeah. Because people have. Sometimes the right behavior, but the wrong right. attitude towards it. Right, right, right. And that doesn't work. Right. That's a that's a that's a great point. Yeah, you, uh, which I think is what Carly is getting at, and that's totally true. Is that people can be rigidly practicing behavior-wise, and yet in their heart, they're totally out uh, out of control. 
Yeah. There was a time it used to bother me when people wore hats inside of buildings because culturally that was yeah. acceptable, yes, but now it's right. not. It's not. Right. It doesn't, they don't mean that. They don't, they're not exactly. doing it. I'm just right. Sometimes we're covering up hair loss as we go. Right. <laughs> well, I, for instance, I was just having a conversation... <laughs> With uh, with Beverly because and so Beverly's gonna listen to this. Sorry, Beverly, to bring you up here, but she's taking classes through Reformation Bible College, which is uh, Ligonier, R.C. Sproul, and so she's hearing the the a position on this issue that's different from what she's hearing me teach in the class necessarily, and she's wondering. And I just said, Beverly, you have to work it out in your own conscience. If you come to the conviction that you need to wear a head covering, I'm not going to be bothered by that. You know, um, and this is where like Romans fourteen fifteen. You know, some observe the day and some don't observe the day. Some eat certain foods and some don't because of their conscience. And we need to give each other room because each one is doing it to the Lord, right? But that doesn't mean that we can just say. As long as your heart's in the right place. People do that with respect to homosexuality. You know, They sincerely believe that this is okay. And they're sincerely wrong. <laughs> you know, so. Sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong, yeah. Sincerity is not enough, for sure. There has to be biblical, a biblical basis. So. Yeah, no. What if there's no, if you think it's upward to their own conscience, so like what if right. someone's conscience isn't, you know, like they're not, they don't have a guilty conscience about women speaking in the church. Right. I mean, how can such a gray area that what people can decide for themselves? Yeah, on this matter, I keep coming back to this in my mind. Right, I keep coming back to this in my mind that um, to, to hold the egalitarian position, right? You have to come to a place where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or authority in the ma- over a man in the church. And you have to come to a place where you flip that in your mind. Where you think, I, I do permit a woman to teach or hold authority over a man in the church. And there's nothing in that passage that would be, that would give you the idea that this might be a cultural practice. Yeah, he even roots it in creation order explicitly, right? And so, and when you have something like that, it's not a really a matter, it's a clear command. It's not really a matter of that we have liberty of conscience to come to different opinions about. When it comes to the issue of head coverings, I do believe that there is good reason to believe that the practice of head coverings was something that was culturally determined. The, the principle is still clear, and there, we don't have liberty of conscience to whether or not we want to submit to our authority. But I think that the issue of the general principle of male headship in, in, in the church and only men teaching uh, men and women, it's just so clear. I just don't know how you could hold a different position and practice a different position without really violating the clear teaching of the Word. And so then your conscience is bound, you know. Yeah. We both have been to two churches, one where they because of this issue, decided that it would be okay for women to be uh, elders in the church. And then once it became an elder, then there were other things that came along with it that were added to it as far as responsibilities and teaching and preaching. And, and the same thing happened when there was a label of pastor because of the level of administrative activities that this person had. And the next thing you know, they were asked to do things that other pastors were doing. And so then they're preaching and teaching. So it, it became kind of a, once you take a bite, Yeah, and let me say, I mean, there are many godly egalitarians, many churches that hold to the egalitarian position that don't end up compromising in a variety of different ways. And I want to affirm that. This is not like a salvation issue where a person holds to egalitarianism and they, they, they can't be a Christian. But... I would say that it also has been observed in church history since, you know, the 1970s, 60s and 70s when these things started to explode onto the into the church uh, in concert with the feminist revolution that you've seen a, a pattern, a repeated pattern that when you that this is typically a first step toward other compromises on the issues of gender and sexuality and that while that's not 
a hard and fast rule, I think it is a danger. Because as soon as you're going to start taking these texts of Scripture, which are many in the Scriptures, and saying, well, we don't, that doesn't really apply to us anymore, and, and exegetically feeling free to deal with them in that way, well, guess what? There are many exegetical, rigorous exegetical arguments about homosexuality being permitted in certain contexts and whatnot. So, <clears throat> it is a, I, I do think it's not a hard and fast rule that there is a slippery slope, but often there is uh, a, a slippery slope there. One of Satan's tools is to erase the lines. Yeah. That he can remove the lines that have been set up by creation, by God, then, right. um, then it starts getting us to where we are today and why you're teaching this class. Right, and I think that one of the dangers that we face in our own hearts even is reading these the scriptures in our own cultural context where these things are so contrary to the cultural norm that we will find ourselves saying in our hearts, well, I know it's the Bible says that and so I'll obey it, but I don't like it. I don't have to like it. No, you do have to like it. Like God has said this is what is true and right and good. Like, this isn't just like, you have to obey it even though... No, this is what is good and right and will lead to flourishing and will bring Him most glory. And so, we need to be those in our culture who are saying, no, this is, this is what is best. You know, this is what reflects God's perfect goodness and wisdom. And we embrace it wholeheartedly, right? So, it starts in the heart, actually, like Carly was suggesting, it it starts in the heart with a willing embrace that these things are not oppressive structures that are des- that just hold us back, and we have to obey them because they're in the Bible. But we don't have to like them. No, something is disordered and wrong in your heart if you're in that spot. You you need to do not be conformed to this world, but be conform but be transformed through the renewing of your mind, so that you say no. This is good and right. Yes. I have a question just about the youth. Sure. Yes. Back here, and I want to make sure I understood what was shared. Right. Um, in the youth groups that we might have here, when and there's boys and girls. Right. And when the boys are maybe older, or the whole group is an older group, we usually want to have a man be in charge of that group because of that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I think... And I think it's a good thing. Right. But I just wanted to make sure I understood that. Yeah, if... I think what we were saying is that while there... You know, can you put a specific age? You know, like, the Bible says at 13, well, no more. I don't know that that you can put a hard and fast rule on it, but I think... We have, as a church, wanted to say, given the principle, the clear principle of male headship, and that's what that we—that's what we do in the youth group. Is we have men leading it, and we typically in the in the gathered youth group will have men teaching. We won't have. That's what I thought. That's where I was. Going yeah, for. it doesn't mean that women are not teaching at all. Like you know, uh, Janelle does not teach. Right, but but you do you do teach like if you're meeting with a, if you have a a group of girls that you're meeting with you you guys have had Bible studies before or even just one on one. Carly has learned from you, right? So in other words, a woman can have a gift of teaching and exercise that gift in a in a, a variety of different ways within the church. What Paul's saying is that in the gathered assemblies of the church and the meetings of the church, when you have men and women present. The men are to be teaching in those contexts. But not that the women don't have gifts of teaching and that they don't employ them in the church in a variety of different ways. I mean, Titus 3 says older women teach younger women principles of godliness. Um, so, is that, yeah, good thing. Yeah. Um, are husband and wife permitted to teach together in a yeah. Um, typically not, because it's still a, a meeting of the church, of men and women. So if there's a formal sort of teaching role, then we would have men do that. However, like was being said before, like I think you brought up, uh, we in our home fellowship groups have 
discussion regarding the sermon. And so women will talk and share their perspective and things that they've learned. And I've been helped and learned from those comments. So is there a teaching? I would say, okay, Ephesians 4, speaking the truth to one another in love for the building. That's taking place all the time. So in that sense, there's women are teaching men at that level. But if there was like, there's a role of leadership and a role of instruction, and that would be in that gathered group of men and women, we would still have men doing it. Right. Purpose for the question is that my late husband and I hosted a home study group. Yeah. And I had a lot more knowledge as far as studying scripture yeah. than he did, and we studied it together beforehand, but then when it was presented, we had set it up to where we were both teaching and there were times that I had to um, to direct in right. a different way because I right. knew that my husband was not yeah. teaching. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it, the, those are the naughty details. Naughty as in K-N-O-T-T-Y, right? <laughs> or sometimes it's hard to untangle exactly how it works out. Um, so, yeah, I mean... A lot of people say with Priscilla and Aquila, the fact that she was always mentioned first indicates that however the relationship worked out, she was maybe a stronger, more mature, more gifted than her husband. And and so you wonder how the conversation went when they pulled Apollos aside, right? So some of these are difficult to work out. Okay, you guys, I'm going to have to move. We have some material. I tried to keep the material for this time a little bit briefer. Um, but what I wanted to do this time is I wanted to talk a little bit more about masculinity and femininity. So this is not going to be so much, so much explicit biblical material, but rather speaking to some of the implications of the biblical material that we talked about last time. We live in... A culture where if I were to say the word toxic, what's the next word that comes to your mind? Masculinity, right? Where maleness and some of the attributes that have throughout history and across the board in most cultures been attributed with maleness are being seen as inherently oppressive and need to be eradicated. And so this issue of can we embrace masculinity and femininity and what does that look like is an issue that we should talk about as Christians. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this today. I want to just start with what we might call, and I, um, a lot of people like to use the word gender confusion. That is true to a degree, but really it's a little more than that, isn't it? It's really a gender rebellion, rebellion against God's created order that we're seeing in our society. So one one area we see this is with transgenderism, where gender itself is now being detached from bio, biological sex, and the idea of a fixed gender binary, male and female, is viewed as an oppressive social construct. In other words, it's just something made up by men, particularly to oppress women or oppress uh, trans people. So it would be made up by our sort of patriarchal society to oppress trans people. And hence the need for hormones and sex reassignment therapies to liberate trans people from the oppressive societal structure of a gender binary. And you also have feminism, which at least in certain iterations of it, I know you could argue that early feminists had some... uh, uh, good and right things that they were fighting for, such as the right of women to vote, etc. Um, but the the later iterations of feminism really worked out the idea that men and women ought to fulfill the idea that men and women ought to fulfill different roles suitable to their biological gender. That idea is an oppressive social construct which needs to be overthrown to liberate women. And actually, if you weren't aware of this, this is where the pill and abortion become very important because they they enable women to be like men in that they're freed from the consequences of sexual activity outside of marriage where if they get pregnant, they can uh, eliminate their pregnancy to be able to work, to have the freedom to work and 
function in society in the same way as men. And that's why you'll see such a rabid commitment to um, especially abortion in our society as being key to the liberation of women. Now, there's a lot to say there, but I think those are some things that we need to say. Now, just to dig a little bit deeper on these, let's evaluate the transgender transgenderism with respect to the Bible. Transgenderism suggests that a man or woman can transition to the opposite gender via hormones and surgery, hormone therapy and surgery. The Bible indicates that to think that way, let alone to attempt it, is rebellion against the created order which has been established by God. Pretty straightforward. It also, we would argue, from a biblical perspective, reflects a gross naivety and even probably better described as a willful denial of how, just how pervasive human gender is. In other words, to think that you could transition from one gender to the next through hormones and surgery is grossly naive about just how pervasive and fundamental to humanity gender is. That you can't transition it in that way. It's just not possible. And this is where scientific studies have actually confirmed by observing the differences between men and women that are pervasive to every part of their bodies. So, for instance, this is just a few examples that I took from some of the literature on this subject. Men typically have 10% higher metabolic rate than women. Men typically convert more energy to muscle while girls more to stored fat. Men typically have larger windpipes, greater lung capacity, larger hearts, and a higher percentage of red blood cells than women do. Women typically have more white blood cells and produce more antibodies than men. Women typically have a more acute sense of touch, hearing, smell, and taste than men. Women are typically better able to pick up emotional cues than men. Duh. (laughs) Men typically have certain hormonal and brain traits that make them more aggressive and assertive than women. Women typically have certain hormonal and brain traits that make them better able to bond with their infant and more protective of it than men. Duh. Differences between the male and female brains, although, you know, some of this is like, okay, we observe these differences, we assume they have something to do with why women generally have better verbal skills than men, and men generally have better visual spatial skills than men. We don't, you know, how do you prove the connection? But we assume that some of the differences in the male and female brains that we do observe both structurally and how they function, has something to do with why this is. And studies have shown that male and female bodies respond to prolonged stress in different ways, that each have distinct advantages and disadvantages. So in other words, the point being that cutting off body parts and taking hormones doesn't change your gender. Gender is far more pervasive to our nature, our human nature, than that would recognize, right? There's a dramatic, that's dramatically wrong. Feminism versus the Bible. Feminism, at least certain iterations of it, has argued that biological differences between men and women don't have anything to do with the roles that they should fill in society. The Bible indicates that men and women are created to be different in ways that make them suitable to perform different roles in society. And the biological and sociological evidence supports the Bible's view, not feminism. So do you see what I'm saying? The the Bible says that God created us different for the purpose of fulfilling different roles. That's why we generally tend to gravitate to those roles. Feminism says, no, yes, we have biological differences, but that has nothing to do with being assigned different roles in society. But really... This is, for instance, uh, taken from an essay by uh, a professor of biology at Bethel College. And he says this, Anthropologists find similar kinds of universal sex-specific behaviors among human cultures to those observed in the higher social mammals. In other words, this isn't just humans. It also applies to male and females in 
other kinds of mammals as well. You see these same types of differences. He says, of 250 cultures studied, males dominate in almost all. Males are almost always the rule makers, hunters, builders, fashioners of weapons, workers in metal, wood, and stone. Women are primarily caregivers and most involved in child rearing. Their activities center on maintenance and care of the home and family. They're more often involved in making pottery, baskets, clothes, blankets, etc. They gather food, preserve and prepare food, obtain and carry firewood and water. They collect and grind grain. The fact that these universals transcend divergent animal groups and cultures suggests that there must be more than a cultural basis for these sex differences. The data point to biological predeterminants of gender-related behavior. Indeed, as we survey the biology of mammals, and humans in particular, we find sex-related differences in all the organ systems, including brain and nervous system. Now, his point is, remember all those differences between men and women that we observe, even from the scientific data about our bodies? He's saying that, look, when you look at human societies throughout history, across the world, no matter what the cultural distinctives are from them, you still see them gravitating out to different roles. And he's saying the, the data indicate, that kind of data indicates that those roles are not just the result of social constructs because they happen in every society, even in other types of animals. And he's saying rather what it points to is the fact that there are certain things about our nature that we're different in certain ways that make us equipped and suitable to different roles in society. And you just can't, write it off like the feminists do as being that's just all a social construct. No, God's created us different. That's why. So without affirming all of these roles that, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, women have to do all these things, but I'm saying this is how it plays out. And so that, that affirms that, yes, God has, as the Bible says, created us different to fulfill different roles. You know, these roles mentioned here are not the biblical roles necessarily. Yeah, because I don't like the firewood. Right, exactly. But they just, it's reflecting the fact that this is not just a social construct. This is reflecting biological differences. Gender goes deep. Gender isn't just a matter of reproductive organs. Neither is it just a subjective inner feeling like we want to say today. You know, today I feel male. Tomorrow I feel female. <laughs> It's something fundamental and pervasive to our nature. So these are even more liberal scholars from previous generations that say things like sexuality, and that was the word for gender in that context, permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of a person's life. Emo Bruner, our sexuality penetrates to the deepest physical, phys- metaphysical ground of our personality. And look, it's evident even in the fundamental building blocks of our bodies, right? Our very chromosomes, the molecules that are the building block of our bodies, you see that they're gendered. So this is not something that you can transition out of, is it? It's way, way more fundamental than that. What are the implications of this? Any subjective feeling of discomfort with our gender and desire to be a different gender is disordered. It's not to say that you know, yeah, we are disordered in many ways because of sin, right? So I have all kinds of feelings that are disordered because of sin. What we don't say is that disordered feeling is what defines my reality, right? We affirm that it is disordered. To identify with a different gender and attempt to alter our body to conform to that chosen gender is sinful and will be destructive, And that when we heartily embrace and seek to fulfill the roles which God created our gender to be most suited for, it will lead to harmony and flourishing. When we don't, it will lead to disorder and harm. So you see how this stands in contrast to both transgenderism and certain iterations of the feminist movement. But with all that being said, and this is the last slide, I want to affirm this. There is not a spectrum of genders, right? These are all the genders you know you could identify, people identify as today, and that's just a small sampling of them. There is a spectrum within the two genders. In other words, and I'm just using stereotypes here, right? But you'll get the point. 
some men are more sensitive, emotionally aware, artistic, nurturing, relational, etc. Some women are more aggressive, are more assertive, are more physical and apt in things like mathematics and other things that generally are more, uh, there are more men show aptitude in. Okay, we can exasperate the gender confusion and rebellion in our day by refusing to recognize and embrace this legitimate diversity within maleness and within femaleness. Does that make sense? I think it's important to say that, that not all men are equal and not all women are equal. There is a spectrum within the two genders that we have to recognize that, yes, that doesn't make them less male, right? It just means that males are, there's a diversity of males and a diversity of females. Some of the confusion is exasperated by the fact that we sort of stereotype males and say, if you're not like that, then you're not really masculine. Janelle? Well, I was just thinking, like, when you look at Jacob and Esau. Yeah. You know, like, totally different people, but, you know, the Lord still was, was, I mean, Jacob was the one that the Lord, you know. Exactly. So. Yeah, they're, they're an example, right? Esau was the hairy hunter. Right. Jacob was the sort of homebody intellectual type, you know. Yeah. You know, Esau comes home, give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob has this, like, sophisticated plan to steal his birthright through it, right? Different. Not, we, we shouldn't say that, you know, someone like, you know, that Esau is true masculinity. I think that exasperates, has exasperated the problem even within the church, right? That we don't say, hey, there's a spectrum of masculinity and femininity. We don't, we're not all cookie cutter, and that's okay. All right, any other thoughts or questions as we're coming to the end here? Yeah, Scott. First off, I want to to say I appreciate you going through this because this is really important because they teach the opposite of this in the school system, state, and they hide it from the parents. And they send these kids on this fantasy that they can do this, and it destroys them in the end. And if we don't speak out against it, who's going to? Because right. a lot of these parents don't even know. And right. then they take the parent away because the parents are divisive with each other. It's evil. Right. It's evil. Right. Very evil. Yeah, I mean, um, what's interesting is there's a lot of, a lot of even you know, hard data from various studies that gets sort of not talked about (laughs) because it doesn't actually end up confirming the conclusions. And so it is interesting that we're even seeing people that would be traditional enemies of the church, like a Richard Dawkins, you know, (laughs) now coming out and saying, no, men are different than women, you know, like... I'm a scientist, like, you just look at the chromosomes, you know, like, they're different. We can't just become a man if we want to. And, and I think what that reflects is that, not that the science determines what the Bible says, but it is true that science, the scientific findings, there's much to that, just clear observations from the study of the, the hum, inner workings of humanity that just confirms what the Bible says such that we have not only the clear truth of Scripture, but we also have the evidence is on our side. And it's important to say that. Uh, In fact, there's a new book that came out by Nancy Piercy on this issue of masculinity where she talks about how we're having a crisis of with respect to men in our society because men are being being masculine is being viewed as increasingly oppressive and so men are being told that they shouldn't be masculine and that's just one destructive effect of this type of teaching on gender that's coming down through the pike like you said yeah any other thoughts or questions yeah i was just going to say one of the things that um, we're seeing now is that um this gender confusion is a fad Right. especially in our school. Right. So we'll have um, a student who thinks they're a boy one day and they're a girl the next day and they've changed their name. It's like a homogenous name, like Hunter. You know, I have a right. specific student. And so um, then the next year, like this one particular student went back to, uh, she's a girl now. And so right. we have to like ebb and flow with her 
because right, right. you know it, we, um, <laughs> right. we can't draw a hard line right now. Well, I would say that this is where Christians are going to face. Uh, I don't think that Christians should, in good conscience, just ebb and flow with these right. things. It's going to make it challenging to be a teacher in the right. public schools. Now, I'm not saying that you just come out and say, you're not really a... Right, well, but, that's kind of what I mean. Like, I say, you're, right. you're a girl, you're not a boy. Right. So we just kind of ebb and flow like, along with her right. emotions, but we definitely have some conversations with her. I'm not afraid to have Christian music. Right, 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 right. Or play Christian music. Perhaps, as Yoda would say, you will be. Oh, you will be afraid. <laughs> In other words, if uh, someone found out that you, had, that you did have a conversation about that, we could be in trouble. You know, I mean, this is, the, this is part of the problem, like Scott was saying. I think Christians are going to find more and more that they have to be very careful, and there may come a point in which they're going to say, I just can't function in this environment. I can't live according to my convictions I'm either going to have to compromise my convictions to continue functioning or I'm going to get myself in big trouble and I have to figure out what am I going to do here yeah. but the thing too is we don't have to have this controversy Controversy, like if that's who she wants to be then she can be that who she wants and it doesn't have to be controversial unless she asks me if she asks me then I'm going to tell her exactly what right. to leave but I don't have to uh, confront her and say you're not a girl or you're not right. a boy because that's where that's where we where we you know we get in trouble. But um, but praying for her is uh, praying for these kids that think it's a fad yeah, is, is the most important thing we can do for them. We don't have to be controversial. Right, with them, with right. You don't. I I would say that people working, for instance, in the public school, like you don't have to initiate the controversy. No. But for instance, if you look in your state school policy like the safe schools and you look under the section of bullying there's a whole section on misgendering and how that's categorized as bullying so you could have a situation where kid comes in parent meets with you my kid is transitioning from male to female and now we would like you to help the class you know make sure that they're addressing her with their preferred pronouns and whatnot what are you gonna you know so i'm saying like i think in Redding, California, chances are we're on the lagging end of that. And administrators and parents, if a parent has a child, that they may not want to make a big stink out of it. But what I'm arguing is that in the future, it may be that we're going to be put in positions where you know, students in our class, people in our workplace are going to want to... They're going to demand that they be addressed as the opposite gender and opposite pronoun and be treated in that way, affirmed, in other words, because that's the real therapy right there. If you want to help this person, you need to affirm them. If you don't affirm them, then you're doing harm. You could even be pushing them towards suicide. That's the. And so there is a real dividing line here that we may be increasingly pushed out of certain sectors of society just because we say, look, I'm not wanting to actively make a stink, but I also can't go along with this, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that God's sovereignty in, in creation, and this is fairly new, yeah. this trend, and I, I just don't think it is that it will be sustainable that the studies that you're talking about that are being mm-hmm. pressed down, and we can't talk about those, but in the next... Right. There'll be fallout of, right. of behavior and, and successes in life and all of those right. things that you will not be able to suppress yeah. For, yeah. for long. It, it seems that fighting against God's created order. Right, 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 right. That cannot be denied. It will not be denied. It will, let's, it will not be denied. We can hope. We can hope that there there will be a, a pendulum swing, swing backward in the near or future that, um, I guess my question is how much destruction and mayhem is going to take place before that happens. I don't know. Right. I, I know that there have been interesting developments. Like in the UK, 
they have the state healthcare, state-run healthcare system, and they actually were one of the first. They were on the leading edge of establishing a gender clinic to perform transition surgeries, etc. And they recently closed down because they had a famous case over there where a woman sued the national health care. I forget what her name was, and won because she was. She was a minor. She was affirmed in her desire. To, and then they did surgery. And then after that, she regretted it and said, hey, I was a minor and I was being told by all the authorities here and all the that. And now my life is, you know, ruined by this. And they actually closed down their gender clinic. And I think in Europe, you're seeing a little bit of a pullback from this, whereas, of course, in America, we're just like full steam ahead. But it could be that there will be a press back. Because at the end of the day, it's like Al Mohler says, you know, that ontology, which means just reality, how things are in the real world is going to trump like how we want it to be, right? <laughs> like desire is going to be trumped by reality. Of course Al Mohler can say it better. <laughs> yeah, I forget how he said it. I messed that one up. But, I, I yeah. have to say what Al Mohler said. Yeah, 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 no. No, but you're you're right. It's just that, you know, who knows? Because this is not just like, it's not like people are looking at the data and going, well, I think this is where it leads us, you know. Because it's a moral conviction. It's a rebellion against God. You just wonder. It's going to be very difficult for people to let go of that. Uh, I don't, you know, it'll be interesting to see money talks so if people start getting sued yeah. there's a law in California that they're trying to pass to take right. kids away if you don't if you don't recognize their desire to be changed yeah that's been on the news lately it's that is shocking but I, mean, I think it's just waiting for Newsom to sign at this point yeah it'll be interesting to see I mean you look at what happened in Virginia and there was some sign of encouragement that here you have a relatively liberal state that actually elected a governor who was more Republican because he was saying defending children's right or the pa- the parents' right to uh, to the children's education, and so you know you start messing with people's kids. It's one thing to talk about it in abstract. That that really rubs people the wrong way, and rightly so. So we'll see. You know, who maybe there will be a pendulum swing back. I don't know, but I do know that we got to close because we're past time. But hopefully this was helpful. And we have one more in this subject where I'm going to address some of the objections to the equal but different stuff because you will run into those and we'll try to fortify the position by addressing some of those objections. And then we will move on from this subject as I'm sure that you guys will be well and good done with it by then. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you have created the world with such magnificent design, reflecting your perfect goodness and wisdom. And Lord, we think of the goodness even of human gender and the way that you have made us different but complementary so that we might fit together in marriage covenants and uh, that our respective differences end up leading to flourishing in the family and in the church. And we thank you that you have, Lord, given us your word to teach us these things that are also obvious and evident in creation itself. We heartily embrace your design, but we also recognize that we struggle with sin and we struggle with the influence of our culture. We often don't realize how much we have been conformed to the thinking and values of the society that we live in just by way of osmosis, as it were. And we pray that you would renew our minds and help us to not only understand your word, but heartily embrace it and to put to death within our souls unbiblical ways of thinking. And we pray that you would have mercy upon even the society we live in, that you would stem the tide of rebellion against your created order and bring back a measure of sanity with respect to this. And Lord, we say that in some ways because we know that the our own people
peace as the church in our society is going in some ways going to be challenged by the direction we're going that as we we're talking about that we might be find ourselves increasingly persecuted as a result of our views and so we pray that you might be merciful and protect us and but give us courage of conviction to hold fast to the truth of your word and to live it out not perfectly but truly within our churches that we might be a beacon of light and of your goodness into a watching world. And so we pray that you would do all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.